Matt and I, we are so thankful and privileged to be here. We came all the way from San Antonio. As uh, you heard, we drove over the last two days, drove into town late last night. Uh, two days on the road from San Antonio was, uh, was actually a lot of fun. I haven't done a road trip in a while, and that was, that was a great blessing to be able to do that and to be here. Uh, we'll be in John today and, and going through some verses, but before we open up, I also wanted to tell you a little bit about why I'm here. Uh, why Brian has graciously offered to give me the opportunity to speak in his place. I talked to him this morning. He's uh, enjoying uh, Houston with his daughter and will be back later tonight and is looking forward to getting back. I know he's been gone all week. And uh, Brian, I met Brian in Colorado Springs. I was a member of Rocky Mountain Calvary for, what was it, four years plus in that church. And God put us in that church uh, right after I became a believer in 1990. Five or six, I don't know what the date, but it was somewhere in there. And we started, uh, not long after that, started attending Rocky Mountain Calvary. And uh, I was basically wandering. I had a faith that was very early. It was very immature. And I knew really only that I had become a Christian. I really didn't understand much more than that. And I had been brought up in a Catholic faith, which in my case meant I was an unbeliever. And that meant that my knowledge of what it meant to be a Christian was, was very distorted. And I got into a church where they were teaching out of the Bible, verse by verse, and it changed my life. And uh, Brian was the first one under which I had a chance to study like that for about four years. And we went through most of the Bible in that four years, Wednesdays and Sundays. And uh, it was in the midst of that I also had an opportunity to hear God's call in my life to know that I had been gifted to do the same thing. Now, that doesn't mean I do it exactly like Brian does. Uh, I'm much better. (laughs) But, (laughs) no. But it, it, it was a... Don't put that on the recording if you don't mind. But it was, in fact, the case that I felt, I remember distinctly sitting in in, uh, his study of Genesis at the time and listening to him teach, and I had two immediate thoughts come to mind that were very striking, and they came almost in the same moment. On the one hand, I remember thinking, you know, he's teaching verse by verse. He's teaching out of Genesis. I think he was in the point at Noah. And, you know, this is to a man who had grown up in in a family who didn't believe the Bible was literally true. And so I'm listening to him teach out of the Bible verse by verse, and I'm thinking to myself, this guy thinks that this is literally true. And he seems so smart. How did, he, how did he believe that this actually happened? And, you know, that tweaked my interest because if this guy thought it was true, I, I needed to give that a second look because I respected what I had heard from him up to that point. And then in the same moment, I remember thinking as well, you know, I can do that. It's not that hard. Now, that's a lot of arrogance, right? That's a lot of, of immaturity in my faith to think of it just as an easy thing we can do. No, it's by God's power that you can do it in the first place. But the fact that I had that thought, to me, was an early sign of how God had gifted me and called me. And as you're sitting here today, you know, in a small gathering like this, you may be thinking you just came here on a Sunday morning because this was the best place to worship. Well, let me tell you, I was thinking the same thing in a strip center church where Brian was at the time in Colorado Springs. And a few years later... You know, I'm pastoring a small church and I'm teaching out of the Word and you don't know what he's got on on his plans for you and why you're here this morning and it may be that. And you're thinking, well, I've got a job. I've already got a life. I don't need something. So did I. That doesn't mean anything to God. So you never know what his plans are. Uh, Just be open to what the Spirit would call you to do. So I just want you to think of me as I go into the teaching today as really just like Brian. Because we really are very similar in many respects. We, We have very, very similar outlooks on life. We have a very similar background in many respects. We both married very... Uh, beautiful, godly women, and, um, you know, there's very little difference between us. I I mean, I guess, you know, I'm a little taller, and I have hair, and I'm smarter and better looking, but, you know, really, none of those things should make you see us as any different. So uh, we we are blessed to be here. Let's go to prayer. I want to pray for Brian's safe travel and for our uh, time in the Word, and then we'll go into John uh, this morning. 
Dear Heavenly Father, Father, I thank you so much that you delivered my wife and I here safely. I thank you, Father, that you have called through your spirit a family of believers, of, of children, to hear your word in this place. And I thank you that you've raised up men like Brian and others around him to do the work of ministry for the needs of your body. Father, you are so gracious to provide us in all those ways. Even as in our own uh, fleshly sin, Father, we may at times look to you for the wrong reasons, for the earthly pleasures that we believe we are entitled to. But, Father, you know better what good gifts to give your children, and you give us the gifts, Father, that have an eternal purpose and eternal value, the gifts of fellowship in the body and the gifts of the, the Word of uh, God taught to us, the gifts, Father, of the Holy Spirit in us, the gifts that we will one day look back upon and realize those were the true gifts, Father, the ones that were truly worth having. Thank you so much, Father, for that mercy and that grace. And, Father, as we open your word, as we devote ourselves to it, I pray, Father, that it would be your word, not mine, that it would be your wisdom, not mine. It would be to your glory and not mine. And, Father, in all these things we do, we would be pleasing to you. And for Brian and Janine, Father, I pray that they would travel back safely tonight, be with them, watch over them, guide them back so that they may return to serving this body as you've called them to do. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we'll be in John chapter 7, and uh, we'll go through the first uh, series of verses in that chapter. I, I teach verse by verse, as does Brian. That was really the, one of the significant influences he had on me, that God had on me through Brian, was that I believe the Word of God is to be preached in that way. And, uh, in fact, for those of you who may be interested after this service uh, to hear what we're doing as a ministry, I think they've added to your website the link to our ministry website, which is versebyverseministry.org. You can check out that link later. But back to the Word, John chapter 7. We're going to start at the beginning of John chapter 7. I wish we had had the opportunity to teach John 1 through 6, because in doing so, you'd have even more context in which to stop or to start this morning in John chapter 7. But we'll make do with what we have. We'll go into 7, and I'll try to provide you some of that background. Let's read from John 7, verse 1. I'll be reading out of the NASB. That is one difference between me and Brian. I've taken a liking to the NASB, but the New King James is just as good, of course, uh, if that's all you have. And uh, just kidding. Just kidding. God's word is God's word. Let's go to John 7. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore, his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Let's stop there for just a moment. As John 7th chapter opens up here, we see Jesus ministering in the Galilee. And I don't know how familiar you are with that part of the nation of Israel. The Galilee is that region in northern Israel surrounding the Sea of Galilee, which is where it gets its name from. And it was in this area within Israel that Jesus did most of his earthly ministry. If you know the stories in the Gospel, both in John's Gospel and in the Synoptic Gospels, you'll hear of places like Nazareth, of course, the place where he grew up. You'll hear of places like Cana or Cana. That's where he did his first miracle, turning water into wine. And the first chapters of the Gospel of John. You hear about the city of Bethesda, the city of fish, as that name means. That's where he did the miracle of taking the fishes and the loaves and feeding 5,000 men. 
in the city of Fish, appropriately enough. And then in Capernaum, which was really the headquarters of his ministry, he was best received there. That's where he did most of his miracles in his early days of his ministry, and that was where he spent most of his time. He was in and out of Capernaum most of the time. He was in Galilee. All these cities are around the Sea of Galilee. They're all a part of the Galilee. And Jesus himself was called a Galilean for that reason, though he was born in Bethlehem, as you know. That part of Israel is considered the backwater part of the nation. You remember in that, uh, early in John's Gospel when Jesus is calling his disciples to him, and at one point Nathaniel is told that we've discovered who the Messiah is. We've found the Messiah. And Nathaniel says, oh, yeah, who is this guy? He's from Nazareth. What was Nathaniel's reaction? Does anything good come out of Nazareth? I love that. I love that. That's one of my favorite verses out of Scripture. Does anything good come out of Nazareth? What an ironic statement. You think he thought differently later? That was the impression that the people of Israel had about that region in the country. I don't know if you have a similar feeling about your own home state here or wherever you're from. I don't know what the backwater part of Nevada would be. Maybe Carson City. I don't know where it would be. But in Texas, we have a backwater part. There's a backwater part of our state that we all kind of look down on. It's called Oklahoma. And we don't like to talk much about it. Anybody here from, from Oklahoma? Sorry. I just, I should have checked before I said that joke. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? They say the same thing about Texas, so that's good, friendly uh, rivalry. And the Synoptic Gospels, if you're familiar with them, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those Gospels really record Jesus' time in the Galilee to much greater detail than John does. In fact, if you look in John chapter 6, the previous chapter, you see the miracle of the fishes and the loaves. That occurs at Passover, we're told, the year before Christ is put to death. So that's one year before his death. John chapter 7 opens with the feasts of the Jews, we're calling it here, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. That's a fall festival that comes after the harvest. So we're talking about a six-month gap in time between John chapter 6 and John chapter 7. But the Synoptic Gospels fill that gap in with a great deal of detail. But John moves to this point for the purpose of why he wrote his ministry. So that's the first piece of background I want you to have, is that as Jesus is ministering here in the Galilee, his brothers... And all the men and women of that age and in that era would have looked at that part of his ministry as being sort of minor league, you know, off the beaten track, not in the right place. It's the backwater place. The other thing you need to know as we go into these verses is that in the time Jesus lived, men in that day, Jewish men, were required to go to Jerusalem at least three times a year to celebrate certain feasts. They could go at other times as well, but at a minimum they had three expectations to go down there. One was for Passover. That was the time, as you know, every year when they would celebrate Israel's exodus. And Luke chapter 2, verse 41 tells you about how Jesus' parents used to take him down there for that purpose. Second was the Feast of Pentecost, or the Feast of First Fruits. That was a spring harvest festival. They always went down to celebrate that. And then lastly, the one you hear about here, the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. It was a feast that was inaugurated after the uh, Jews left Egypt, and it was to memorialize several things. First, the year they spent wandering in the desert, living in tents. Booth just means tent, living in tents. It was also a harvest festival coming after the fall harvest. It was the most popular festival. It was the most well-attended. It was an eight-day festival, and it was a big party. It was like Mardi Gras because you had the food coming in from the harvest. You had everybody gathered in Jerusalem, and it was a big party. And it was a, it was a festival coming out of God's law, so it was, it was something mandated for the men as well. So here we have this six-month gap. And in that six-month gap, you have Jesus now essentially becoming a rock star. In his day, based on his miracles and on the work he did in the Galilee, he had a huge following. How many people do you think started following after him 
after he fed 5,000 plus people with a few loaves and fishes, right? It doesn't take a genius to figure out how popular he would have been in that culture. So he's a rock star, but he's sort of a big fish in a small pond when you consider that he's in this backwater part of Israel. That would have been the way the culture would have seen him, obviously. Not the way God would see it, of course, but the way the men of the world would have seen it would have been that, Jesus, you're doing good things here, but you really need to get where you can get some more notice. You need to get out of this backwater part of the country. So those are the two things we need to understand as we look at the verses today. Look at what we've read. Verse 3, for example. The brothers looking at Jesus. Now, one thing you should recognize right up front. These are half-brothers. These are the natural children of Joseph and Mary. We say half-brothers, though, because Joseph was not the natural father of Christ, as you know from the gospel. So these are his half-brothers, his real brothers in his family. And what I find most interesting about that, of course, is that men who grew up with him in the household that he lived in were not believers in him, which is to say that being associated with, being familiar with Christ in and of itself does not guarantee someone's faith in him as Messiah. You can't rub up against somebody with your faith and calling yourself a Christian and living your witness out and expect that necessarily to bring someone to Christ, though it might. The gospel itself, the word of God, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. The gospel itself preached is ultimately the ministerial tool of choice that God has inaugurated for the purpose of bringing faith. So, yes, we get to know someone through our life. We get to witness to them and open doors, perhaps, by our lifestyle. But at some point, bring the word. At some point... Preach the gospel. Make mention of who you believe in and why. The brothers here, for whatever reason, in God's sovereignty, had not yet come to faith. They give a reason for this suggestion they make. They tell them, get out of here, go down to Jerusalem, go to Judea, and they give a reason for it. Look at the reason. They want to persuade them that they've got to go, or Jesus has to go, where he can get the most attention, where his ministry will get attention. He says, no one who is trying to be known, and by, what they mean by that is, no one who's trying to be famous would intentionally remain working in secret. And they equate staying in the Galilee with working in secret, being off the beaten path. Now, when they tell this to Jesus, they're making two assumptions that we need to understand. First, they assume that Jesus' ministry in the Galilee has been a failure to some degree because it's not drawn enough attention. They're measuring the success of his ministry on the basis of how much attention he's drawing through it. Or maybe better said, whose attention he's drawing through it. It's a ministry they they feel is sort of minor league, as I said earlier, kind of small time. It can't produce the results Jesus must want, which are what? what? What results do they assume Jesus wants out of his ministry? It is to be known as the Messiah. If you want to be the Messiah, if you're on this public campaign, Jesus, to be seen as the Messiah and recognized as such, well, you're not going to get it done up here. I mean, you only got these people looking at you. You need to go down to the big city and get the attention of the big people, the important people, and then maybe you can convince them you're the Messiah. Maybe then you'll be inaugurated as the Messiah. You'll be granted that title. Therefore, go down to Jerusalem is their their recommendation. That leads us to the second assumption they're making. The second assumption they're making by what they've told him to go do is that his ministry is all about making a public case for himself. They've made the assumption that what their brother here is really about is making a case for himself to the public that I'm the Messiah, you ought to believe me as the Messiah. Now, at first glance, that makes sense to us, right? Well, yeah, it sounds like that's what Jesus was doing. He was telling the world about who he was and declaring the need to believe in him. Well, that's true, but that's not exactly what they're suggesting here. 
They're suggesting something a little different. They're assuming that he has to win their acceptance in order to be the Messiah. That in order to be the Messiah, he needs the people to agree with that. That his ministry is really just a popularity contest. It's like running for public office. And if I can gain enough votes, I will become the Messiah on the basis that I convinced enough people to believe that I am. But if I don't, if I don't succeed in convincing them, I'm not the Messiah. That's the underlying assumption to their recommendation here. He just needed enough support to get what he wanted. Now, it's easy from the text to see why they would offer that kind of cynical advice. Look at the reason we're told at the end of those verses I read. They're not believers. They're not giving him godly advice because they're not godly men. Because they don't have the Holy Spirit in them. There's no reason for them to know what good advice would be under these circumstances. And they're never going to suggest that Jesus' claims to being the Messiah are true, in and of people, regardless of people's perception, because their own perception of him is that it's not true. So they're assuming that it will depend on public perception. The advice they gave, as wrong as it is, as wrong as we know it to be, based on what they were assuming, is based on prim- principles that are still common today. And I would even go so far as to suggest sometimes in our own walk and in our own world, of ministering to other people, we may be tempted to fall back into those assumptions without even realizing we're doing it. And it would guide, in some cases, the decisions we make in our own personal ministries. And by the way, we all have a personal ministry. Sometimes I think people's sense of ministry is with a capital M. You know, the guy we pay or or the lady who volunteers full-time to do something for. I mean, that's true also, but there's no such thing as ministry in a capital M and ministry in a small M. It's all ministry. We all have the same calling out of of the gospel. We were all saved for the same reason. And that is to be a light and to be salt and to be the the feet and hands of Christ in this world, to be his body, right? To bring the word of God in whatever our gifting is. Well, if you understand that about yourself, if you understand you have that calling in your life, somehow, somewhere, some way to be a minister to other people, then you have to be conscious of the fact that these principles are not a part of your motivation for ministry or about how you drive your ministry forward. For example, the world would see the truth of this gospel or of anything in general as a popularity contest. They accept that whatever the majority believes is truth. The more people who would agree with a given position, the more it becomes worthy of our trust and our belief. It's, it's a relativistic form of thinking. That's what guides the world right now. You can see this kind of thinking in the fact that people used to think that sex outside of marriage was immoral. And they used to think that because most people agreed with that. You know, the the people of the 40s or the 30s or the 20s, or I don't know where you go back in time, but at some point in our past, our parents or our grandparents or our great-grandparents would have been aghast at the thought of two young people shacking up together outside of marriage. Now, I'm not saying that made them a believer. I'm just saying that the public perception was that that was wrong, so the belief was that it was wrong. But then somewhere along the way, popular thinking began to reject that idea, and so truth changed. Right Now, truth is that it's no big deal. Who cares? Let me do what I want. What's the problem? Not hurting anybody. What's the difference? It's just marriage is just a piece of paper, so why can't we do this? See how truth changed in the public's perception based on a movement of the ideas of the population about what is good and what is bad. That's how the world works. And it's that kind of thinking that I think is behind what the brothers are suggesting here to Jesus. They thought that if he wanted to be accepted as the Messiah, he needed to go where he could get more support, go to the big city. And if they agree with his claim, then he would become the Messiah. 
It's a completely backwards thinking on what it meant to be the Messiah. Look what they said in verse 4. Anyone who's trying to be known publicly, that's that phrase that means being famous. They see his effort here as public relations. So why are they making this suggestion? They're making this suggestion because it's cynical. It's, it's intent here is not truly to see him lifted up as the Messiah. Their intent here is to say, look, it's easy for you to get the attention of these small crowds and to be seen as popular and to be seen as meaningful. Let's give you a real test. Why don't you go down to where the real critics are, where the Pharisees are, to where the Jewish leadership is, to the temple, to people who know the law, and let's see how you fare there. Let's see if you're really going to make it there. Because if you can't make it, you know the old phrase, if I can make it there, I can make it anywhere, talking about New York City. It's the same sense here. If you make it there, then we'll believe you. Let me tell you, folks, truth is not determined by public acceptance. Truth is truth, regardless of how many people believe it or accept it. In fact, there was a time not long ago when people used to think that if you traveled too far in any one direction on earth, you would fall off the end of the earth and you would descend down into hell. And that was the lar- largely the reason why no one wanted to travel too far by ship in the 15th century. But then, of course, Columbus came along and proved that wrong. You know, if that thinking were still true today, if men and women still believe today that the earth was flat and you could fall off the edge if you went too far, then when my wife and I left San Antonio two days ago and started driving here, we would have had this fearful expectation that if we kept driving in the same direction long enough, sooner or later we would end up in this miserably hot place surrounded by sin and depravity all around us. <laughs> Wait a minute, that's a, bad, that's a bad example, sorry. But you know what I mean. Obviously, truth is not measured by popular opinion. We've heard that before. But by that same token, then, the truth of Jesus' claims to be the Messiah were never dependent on how many people accepted him in his day. It was never a popularity contest on his part. He was the Messiah before even one person accepted him as such. And here's the point I want you to take away in looking at your own ministry. He did not, therefore, orchestrate his ministry and the time he had on earth in order to obtain popular acceptance. He did not take steps in the way he orchestrated his ministry merely for the purpose of gaining public acceptance. That was not his point in his ministry. That was not his purpose. And you have plenty of evidence of how he went out of his way, in fact, to avoid attracting people on his own behalf. Plenty of examples. We only have to look back a few verses in John's Gospel, in fact, and to help with the context. I want you to look back at John 6.22 for just a moment. This is where you see him feeding the, having fed the 5,000. I don't know if you know the story very well, but as he's finished feeding the 5,000, I think all of us have heard that, no doubt. He's fed the 5,000, and it's actually probably more like 10 or 15,000 when you count women and children. The next day, though, John records this. Look at about 6.22. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea, saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias, near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. What had happened was, after Jesus fed the 5,000, he and the disciples crossed the Sea of Galilee. That's where you hear in the Gospels the story about how he calmed the sea. He's gone across. As he's gone across and he's sought refuge on the other side, then you find out the crowd comes the next morning looking for him again. Now, this is the crowd that had just been fed. They come back. What do you think they're coming back for? He's the Messiah. We come back to worship him, right? 
He's the Messiah. We come back to know how I can serve him, how I can follow after him, how I can be his disciple, right? Because that's what happens naturally every time somebody has an encounter with Christ, right? No. No, unfortunately, no. When they find him on the other side, I love this, they say in verse 25, when they find him on the other side of the sea, they say to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? You know, that's the equivalent of someone who runs after another person to catch them somewhere. But when they finally bump into him, it's like, oh, surprise, I can't believe you're here. What a coincidence that we meet each other here. That's what they're saying to him. Oh, when did you get here? Well, you know, we were just over there, too. It's funny how we're both over here now. No, there was an act. And look at Jesus' response. I love the fact because not only does he speak truth, but he sees through their little charade. Look what he says. Verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Then he says, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father, God, has set his seal. And look all the way down in verse 36, just to jump to the conclusion. John 6:36. But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. Now, why am I mentioning these verses? Because if Jesus' purpose were to build himself up in the eyes of the people, merely as a popularity contest, even though he was the Messiah, but, but even in that alone, he still did not try to build himself up by appealing to people's personal needs. Because he could have done that right here, couldn't he? I mean, he had the perfect opportunity. He had a huge crowd he had just fed. They're following after him to the point that they're willing to cross the Sea of Galilee to get to him. And look what he does. He turns them away. And he turns them away on the right basis. He says, you don't believe in me. I don't want pretenders. I don't need a crowd. I'm God. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I made every single one of you. I made this world, and it's being held together by the power of my word, and it will be destroyed in flame the moment I say so. You have nothing to offer me. The only thing I want is your faith in me. And if you're following me for any other reason, I don't need you. Because it's not of any value to God. It is impossible to please God unless you have faith, right? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So they could not please him merely because they wanted to follow him. So it is not the case, self-evidently. And there's other verses in Scripture where you see him telling those he's healed, do not tell anyone about me. Do not tell anyone I've healed you. It is self-evident in Scripture that God is not intent on building up his own fame in men through fleshly needs and desires and fleshly wants. That does no good for God. It gives him no glory. It is by faith alone. So when you see the brothers telling him, go down to Jerusalem so you can build up your, your fame in the eyes of people, Jesus is not interested in that request. Because without faith, that kind of notoriety gains him nothing. Nothing of any lasting value. They were seeking after their own needs in John 6, and the brothers are assuming that that's the only kind of following that Christ is looking for. The other thing I'll point out as we move on is that Jesus himself knew he would be rejected, correct? In fact, his ministry was dependent on that. That God intended for it to be that way. That being the case... It is not going to be consistent with that purpose that he build up a huge positive following in that day. How would he be put to death if the crowds had called for Barabbas to go to the cross rather than Christ? It is self-evident in the way that God carried out the the message of the gospel and the the arc of Christ's life on earth. It's self-evident there as well that God was not intent on building Christ up in the eyes of the populace merely as a popular leader. That didn't serve God's purpose in this day. So knowing those things, what does that say about our call today in the ministry we are given? What does that say about the church today? First and foremost, the church's mission 
as it's been given to us through the Holy Spirit, is not a public relations campaign. First and foremost, we are not to orchestrate our ministry so as to win men through fleshly desires. To win men's approval of Christ because of what we do to feed their fleshly interests. We don't try to establish that the truth of what we hold in the gospel is the truth merely because we can gain a lot of people's agreement with it. That we can fill a room, for example, a big stadium if it were possible, with a lot of people who all come in agreeing that they like Jesus. Because unless that, that like of him is based and rooted in a belief in the gospel, it is a worthless kind of desire. It is a self-deceiving kind of desire. It is ultimately the kind of desire that leads to a lot of people standing before Christ on Judgment Day saying, Lord, Lord, we heard you teach in our streets. We saw you feed us. And he says, away from me, I did not know you. You know what's most striking to me about that moment as Christ describes it? Is that I truly believe the people who stand before him are surprised to find that out. I don't believe they're faking it. I don't believe you could. I don't believe in that moment of judgment there's anything but transparency. I don't believe you can carry into that moment a game and play some game in front of Christ in that moment. I think in that moment all that's stripped away, and it is you and God in the seat of judge, in the moment of judgment for the unbeliever, and there is no pretense. And yet they truly believe they're going to be okay. It's a sign of how self-deceived the world can be if they come to Christ on the wrong basis, without faith in him as the Messiah, but merely for some earthly desire. And there are plenty of men and women in the ministry today preaching Christ from that perspective, preaching it from an earthly, worldly, fleshly perspective. Come to him, he'll make you rich. Come to him, he'll solve all your problems. Come to him, he'll take away all your pains and sufferings in this life. Come to him, and you'll have everything you want. Have you not heard that preached somewhere today? If you haven't, you're just not listening. Because it's out there, everywhere I turn. Where is that rooted? It's rooted in the same thinking these brothers had. As long as I can get popular acceptance of Christ, I've achieved something. And that, likewise, they think they've gained something. That's not the message of the gospel. What does Christ tell us through his own words? Matthew 21:17, that the disciples should expect to be hated because of Jesus' name. John 17 tells us that the result of our faith in Jesus would be that the world will be our enemy and they will make us their enemy. In Matthew 7:14, Jesus refers to his message as a narrow path that few will find. And in Luke 13:24, a narrow door that some will enter but others will seek to enter and will not be able to. These are challenging verses that should help at least to some extent moderate how we approach ministry in this world so that we bring the message of the news, of the good news, uh, clear and, and forthright and joyfully because that's how we received it. But we don't pander. You know what that word means? It's not a bear. It's, 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 it's talking about bringing a message to someone in whatever way we have to to get them to agree with it. It's a manipulation. It says, I told it to you this way and you said no. Hmm. What if I come at you this way? I told you that you'd have to be baptized and you didn't like that. Well, how about if I tell you you don't? Or I tell you that you have to uh, be a part of a body of believers on a regular basis because the Scriptures command us to do that. That should be the natural response of someone with the Holy Spirit. But you don't like getting together with other Christians? Well, don't worry about that then. Now, I'm not saying those are conditions of being a believer. You know they're not. But I'm saying that if we bring the message of the gospel with all that's around it in Scripture and that doesn't appeal to someone, leave that in God's hands. You preach the word. 
You don't have any other responsibility. But where our temptations are to change the word so that we can appeal to someone's fleshly interests, we're going down the road the brothers went down. We're appealing to people so that we feel better that they join what we're doing. I mean, the heart there is right to bring people to Christ, but you didn't get what you thought you got because you didn't do it in the right way. Look back in chapter 7. We'll read a couple more verses for today. Look at John 7, verse 6, in the way Jesus responds to these brothers. He said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. It was Jesus' testimony itself that brought the hatred he experienced and therefore his rejection. It was his testimony. It was his word that brought people's hatred of him because he says, I testify of their evil deeds. What do we say about someone's walk into the faith? We say it has to begin with repentance followed by faith in the gospel. The reason there's two steps is because you can't hold two things in your hand at the same time. You can't simultaneously believe in Christ as your Savior and hold to anything else the world offers for that same end. I can't say I believe in Christ and. Right there you're wrong. For salvation's purpose, it is Christ or no one else. It is Christ alone. No one comes to the Father but through Christ. So if the world is not repented of everything else it holds dear and true, it cannot then turn and receive the one true thing there is. Repentance is always a predecessor to faith because you have to reject what you previously held to be true before you can accept the real truth. And what he's saying here is, I bring them knowledge of their evil deeds and they hate me for it, which means they have not repented of them, which means they are not turning aside from the world and facing him. They are still with their back to him. That's what he is experiencing by the message he's brought. In our calling, therefore, we are called to carry the message of the gospel into the world, but not like these brothers think. We're called to bring the message in its full form. Don't reduce the truth of the gospel to a popularity contest. Don't measure your success by how many you receive in the truth on your watch. And I pastored a small church that started in a home, as I mentioned, and had at one point about the size of people in a, in a room like this. It is at this point, this is, the, this is the most enjoyable time in a church's growth in my experience. Don't, don't, don't overlook this time. Cherish this time. You have the chance to know everyone and to disciple one another and to know each other's lives and to support one another in a way that just doesn't happen very easily when you're 2,000 people or more. This is a special time, and maybe God will give you the blessing of never giving you more, or maybe he will choose to bless you by giving you many more. But if he does, don't let your heart's desire to see the word received and the growth ensue ever let you become tempted to change the truth. If people will not accept what it means to be a Christian on the basis of what the Bible teaches them it means, that's between them and God. You don't change the message because, just, because the church down the street has seen double-digit growth over the last two years, and you haven't, and you're starting to think you must be doing something wrong. And then the temptation, of course, is to say, well, let me see what they're doing. A.W. Tozer had a great example of how we should be uh, guiding our work in ministry. He says, if you had a room full of pianos, you don't tune them to one another. You tune them all to a common tuning fork, and by doing that, they will all play in concert. The tuning fork for us is the Holy Spirit. We are tuned, and, and through the Word of Christ, we are tuned to God. If one of those pianos starts to get a little off tune, the rest don't go with it. They stay tuned to the example. And they let the one be off by itself. If one church, by whatever means, does its own thing, and the success it brings itself is a success of numbers, 
but not truly a success of the work of God in the hearts of people, you may not realize that. And so you may be tempted to think the numbers in and of themselves prove the success of that group. And if you fall into that trap, you start tuning yourself to that individual church rather than to the leading of the Holy Spirit in this church. I don't know what God's plan is for you, and I don't know if you do either, but it doesn't really matter for what you do today and what you do tomorrow. The Word of God won't change. The truth won't change. Do what it calls you to do. Preach it in its fullness as Brian will be faithful to do. And let God worry about the rest. And I have a great hope and personal belief that when you do that, the body is drawn to that and will grow. I mean, people often say healthy things grow. Be careful with that because so does cancer. So it is a truth, I believe, that God's church will grow and fill the world as God uh, determines it will happen. But, but don't presume too much about what he's got planned for this one body in today or tomorrow. Consider as we close today, Paul, probably the greatest evangelist of all time, look what he said about his ministry. Now, if you want to tune yourself to somebody other than the Holy Spirit or, or the tuning fork of, of God himself and his word, then maybe Paul is, is the best example I would choose to do that with, if anyone. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2. He says, For I was determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Yet we do not speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden mystery, which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. What Paul said there in those verses essentially is two things. Number one, I didn't come to you real smart and slick. I came to you preaching the same message you've always heard. Christ and Him crucified. Not some new methodology. Not some new take. Not some fancy new way of showing it to you. It's the same message, pure and simple. So that when you believed it, you didn't credit me. Think about that now in terms of a church. If the church preaches Christ and Christ crucified and there are 10,000 people, who do you give glory to? God and God alone. If they're 10,000 people, though, and they've got a sports gym with a climbing wall and the big 40-foot screen TVs and they've got the gymnastics in the, you know, I'm just making all that up. But you know what I'm saying. And then somewhere in there, maybe in a corner of one room, they pray with you over the gospel, but by and large, the rest of it is just a circus. Then men are prone to credit all that methodology and to mimic it, thinking that's where success came from, right? Who's getting the glory? The men. And I would argue that more cases than not, the kind of growth you're seeing is really just surface. It's not true growth. There's, there's not a true faith being developed in the hearts of those people, other than perhaps God deciding to do it despite those men, which he can do. Don't fall into that temptation. I can't think of a city in the world where you really would have more of that kind of contrast to to use as your own example, right? The world out there is so much about appealing to the flesh and throwing something big and flashing in front of someone's face to catch their attention. God forbid the church would ever try to fall back on that methodology. I have so much faith in what this group will do because I know Brian and I know his heart and I know the kind of things he would hold true and I, I have every confidence it will carry on in this fellowship. But as we close today, 
I never want to see, and I hope you agree with me, that the public acceptance of the gospel would ultimately become a measure of whether God is granting us success in our efforts. There are many stories of men and women who as missionaries went to far corners of the world and toiled in obscurity for decades and had no converts and wondered, why God? What am I doing wrong? And then later, their death and someone's subsequent visit after them was where the fruit of that ministry finally became known. There's a famous story of James Dobson and about how he, as he grew up, had a father who was very big in his own ministry and was very famous on the speaking circuit. And as he went around speaking around the country, he was never at home. And James Dobson's mother at one point took his father aside and said, your son needs you here in the house, and I can't have you away so much. You need to find a way to be here in this house with your son. And he gave up his ministry. He resigned from his ministry, resigned from his speaking tour and his duties, basically walked completely out of the ministry and became a full-time father in the home and took on an everyday job, if you will. When his son was later grown and out of the house, he tried to go back, but by then it was too late. Nobody knew him anymore, and there was no opportunity. He had essentially lost his only opportunity in the ministry. Now, from that man's perspective, he may have felt like he had failed in what God had called him to do. Couldn't see any fruit in his life. But, of course, what did he end up doing? He raised James Thompson, who through his ministry has blessed many people. You see, you don't know how God's planning to work through your life. As long as you're true to the Word of God and to the calling of that ministry in your heart, you'll get the fruit that God is expecting you to get, even if it doesn't come in your lifetime. But I shudder to think what he would do on the day of judgment for those who come before him and have chosen to go their own path and to appeal to fleshly interests, all in his name, but none to his glory. We are not to be like that. And I call uh, the call of the gospel is so clear in that respect that I trust you and I would never fall into that. Let us just be reminded out of God's word today about the importance of staying true to the ministry he's called you to have in this small gathering, one day perhaps to be big, But in the meantime, always to be true to the gospel as it's written in Scripture, never to be a show. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the time we've had in your word this morning and for the opportunity to preach it. Father, we have hearts to want to do your will. We have hearts, Father, to know the gospel fully in our lives, both in our our own knowledge of it as well as in the way we live it out, to be reflections of it. And, Father, I know that by the power of the Spirit in us, we have a true heart to hear others come to it, to know it and to believe it as we we have, Father, and to live it out as we try to do. And, Father, that desire is so strong in us. I pray the Holy Spirit would always use it in the right way, direct us in the right way. Never give us, Father, the the thought to take it on our own strength and our own power to, to bring men and women into the faith, if even that were possible. Father, just to remain humble, to remain servants of you, to to do as you call us to do, preach the good news, tell of the work you've done in our lives, Father, give glory to Christ, and then trust, Father, that where we do those things, you will bear the fruit. Father, I thank you so much for the ears and the attention of those in this room. May they hear this message and put it to the work you've intended it to be used for, and may they feel encouraged to go out and deliver the good news. And Father, for the grace and mercy you've already poured out on this fellowship. I pray that you would continue to build them according to your will, that you would bring them to know you individually and then corporately, Father, to be of service to you and all that you have intended for them, always to your glory. Thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.